0: Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's turn our attention to the scriptures. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 6 and we'll get through partway through this. I'm going to change the title on your bulletin as the title is wrong. I'm going to change the title to Finding the Motivation to Obey. And we're going to look at the story of Noah as we're going through the book of Genesis. And uh, we'll look at this first part of how God starts getting Noah ready for the flood. And then next week we'll look at the ark itself. You should have received a handout as you walked in called The Days of Noah. Everybody should have that on hand. I'll refer to that in just a bit. I'll make a relation to that when we read the text. Finding the motivation to obey as the title of the message is going to be the theme as you see carried through this because Noah's going to be preserved through the flood and with his family. The thing about this is we all want to obey the Lord. There's no doubt about that. We have good intentions in our minds to obey God. But the issue then becomes, how come we sometimes struggle to obey? How come we know what's right But we go ahead and do what's wrong, even though we know it, even though we believe right, you sometimes in our lives, we don't see a correlation to our behavior in what we believe. We'll talk about that because the quintessential example of obedience is Noah. You can't get more obedient than that. I mean, Noah was in a a difficult time, a horrible time, one of the worst times in human history. And he still was able to maintain his obedience and with his family How did he do it? Because the time of Noah was so bad, it required a flood. And we obviously see now that in our world, the times are getting so bad, it's going to require the tribulation. And that's what's going to happen in the future, obviously. The seven-year tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. But Noah and his family were able to maintain their obedience to God, and obviously they were spared from the flood by going in the ark. And we talked about this. We did two sermons on the sins of the watcher. It wasn't just the fact that humans were just sinful. The sinfulness of humans was exacerbated by the sin of the watchers. And to refresh our minds, the sins of the watchers were fallen angels cohabitating with human women and then producing monstrosities in the genetic codes and creating at another level. Now think about this. When you have these monstrosities that are half demonic, half human, and the human part of them has a sin nature to begin with. But then their other spiritual component is demonic. How bad do you think it got? It was horrible. So you can't relate anything that you know currently about evil to how bad it was back then. It was, it was so bad. But we're racing to that other time where in the future it will be that bad where Jesus is going to have to come back. And deal with the whole matter because it gets so bad. And that'll be through the exasperation of the Antichrist and the false prophet and the whore of Babylon, obviously. But when you have demonic or satanic influence that heavily in the genetic code, in these hybrids, it went bad real quick. So it's hard to imagine that Noah was able to stand his ground and not move on that. And you and I are going to have to do the same thing. The way the culture's going, the way it's moving very rapidly, exponentially, is forcing you and I to either take a stand against it or compromise. That's where it's at. And for Noah, he would not compromise. He did not give in and say, well, you know, everyone's doing it. And by the way, everyone was doing it. It was that bad. The whole world was doing it. And as you see, the movements in this world It's everyone starting to get on the same plane. Even Christians, believe it or not, are getting involved and following like lemmings right off the cliff and thinking they're being tolerant and thinking they're being diverse and this and that and all the buzzwords from the Marxists. But nonetheless, how will you and I prevent ourselves from compromising, from crossing lines? Because if you cross a line, you won't come back from How do we do that? Well, we're going to take the cue from Noah, and we'll talk about that. But it's that bad. And so let's look at the text and what it's saying and what how Noah stood his ground in the midst of all this chaos that was ensuing. Verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So what he's talking about externally. I'll talk about that that wickedness in just a bit, and I'll define it for you but it's external. Everyone's doing this, by the way. It's, it's a global phenomenon, okay? And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Look at that phrase, only evil. They had no intentions in their mind of doing good, doing right. It was only evil And this is talking about the heart, the internal person of these individuals. Everything that they thought about was evil continually. So externally and internally, it's that bad. That's hard to imagine, that every thought of those individuals would be on evil. But that's how bad it got exacerbated by the sin of the watchers. So one of the things then I want you to refer to is in that handout I gave you, the days of Noah, What I want you to see in that handout, and you can look through it. I'm not going to go through all of them at all. I just want want you to take that home, look at it on your own, and kind of get a good grasp of it. Basically, those things that are enumerated on your paper that I put in front of you is what was going on. Because what happens is what was going on then, we know because it's predicted to happen in the future. So you have a correlation between the two. Because Jesus said... It will be likened to the days of Noah before the coming of the Son of Man. So when you study both what was happening with Noah and what is predicted to happen and is already happening for the last days that we're living in, the two actually parallel each other. So we know what happened in Noah's day based on what's predicted for the future, if that makes sense. So you connect the two. When you connect those dots, it is a very evil world you're looking at. And that's where we're going. Unfortunately. So we hope in our lives that things wouldn't get that bad, but unfortunately, the longer we're living, the worse things are getting. And it's not to be a downer on that. It's just to understand reality and get our hands around that reality that we're going back to the days of Noah where every person will do wicked and they will think wickedly. They won't think right. They'll think they're doing good, but they're not. That's where we're going. One of the things I want to note on your paper is the manipulation of DNA. That's one of the hallmarks that started all this. The fallen angels were doing this through human cohabitation. And that being the case, they were tampering with DNA. The DNA structure then ceased to be human. You'll see this with Noah. It's a reference to his DNA being pure, okay, in just a second. So... DNA structures were being mutated, recombinations were happening. We talked about the ancient mythologies of these demigods, these half-human, half-creatures, and all these myths from the ancient world. It's a reference to Genesis 6. That's what was happening. No doubt, Noah saw these hybrids. He saw giants. He saw half-human, half-creatures, whatever. He saw those things going on. And again, it just, it's just hard to imagine, but this is how Noah was dealing with the world he was dealing with. He had to stand his ground in the midst of all that. Okay, what are we doing now? We are starting to tamper with DNA now. Okay, so it's not angels doing it now, it's humans doing it. So it's still the same concept. DNA is now being tampered with. Cloning, Franken babies and all this other stuff, designer babies, all that stuff. We're now moving into that realm. Well, if God didn't put up with it in Genesis 6, what makes us think he's going to put up with it now once we start tampering with DNA? Creating hybrids or whatever it is, or designer babies or whatnot. The second thing I want to note on your handout is high levels of demonic activity. Definitely happening in Noah's day. Beyond comprehension of how much demonic activity was going on. But I will say this. We're now moving into a time where we are seeing, as, as, as we watch things develop, high levels of demonic activity not just externally but also inside the church i have seen more demonic activity in the last five years than i did the previous years of my ministry and i can't explain it other than it's getting worse and worse and people can pretend that it's not happening but it is it really is Christians are telling me they're having demonic manifestations and different things happening to them and all kinds of attacks from the demonic realm. And I'm not talking about them over-spiritualizing things. I'm talking serious, objective demonic attacks on them, on their family. So I, I'm getting the reports. I also hear about outside other remnant churches having the same thing, seeing high, high levels of demonic attack. So the point about this is things are ramping up in the spiritual world. And as you look in the tribulation, it's high levels of demonic activity once again. It's no joke, man. It's not a game. The demonic realm is up to something. They are bringing their plans to fruition. God is allowing it, obviously. But like as in the days of Noah, so shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. We should expect this. So those are the two things I just wanted to highlight as a parallel, and there's more parallels you can read on your that handout, but it's that bad. And the idea is, this is interesting, with the high levels of demonic activity, they parallel what was happening in Noah's day. As you recall, we talked about what were the watchers doing? They were giving information to these human fathers who were told, if you allow us to marry your daughter, we'll give you secret information. And that secret information was there to exacerbate the sinful nature and the conditions of the world towards more evil. So think about this. When these angelic creatures gave humans secret information about metallurgy, about astronomy and different things, with the combination of the sin nature and evil, those humans made and invented things and developed things that brought more destruction, brought more chaos to the world. It didn't help humans. It made it worse. So, like, you can read extra-biblical literature. One of the big issues they were teaching humans how to do warfare, how to make weapons, and things of that nature. And because of that, you know, you'll see in the text, violence erupted. People were knowing how to do certain things and kill certain uh, kill certain ways. Now you bring it into our world today. There have been reports that highly intelligent people are being given information from the demonic realm. What do you mean? Well, as an example, there's a famous mathematician, I can't remember his name, in India. Super smart. But, for instance, no one in the in the world of mathematics could solve a problem. They all struggled with it. The highest mathematicians couldn't solve the problem. Anyway, this guy from India eventually solved the problem. And no one knew how he did it. So they asked him, how did you do it? And he goes, well, a spirit came to me and told me how to solve the problem. So you have that level of information being given out. And now that's just math, okay? But it does show you that people who do not know the Lord, that are highly intelligent and are given information, end up destroying things. Think about the principle. If secret knowledge or more knowledge is given to a human being that has a sinful proclivity they become extremely dangerous. For instance, think about Google. Think about Amazon. Think about Facebook. How much power those owners of those corporations have. It's unbelievable. Now let's take that mindset and that kind of power and let's twist it to serve Satan's purposes. You see how evil things can get really quick? If you use Google or Amazon or Facebook... In an evil way, things can get out of control that quick. And so that's what I want you to understand is that's what was happening in Genesis 6 as secret information was given out, and now information is given to highly intelligent people to develop and invent certain things that will be the demise of the human race through the tribulation. Do not think for a moment that the technology that exists is not going to be used by the Antichrist. Of course he would. What is it showing you? That information is being given out. That's what the word occult means, to reveal secret information. And these people are not Christians who own these companies. Who knows what's going on behind the scenes? But we know this, that the evil dictators of the past were in touch with Satanism, like Hitler and Stalin and all these other creeps that killed masses and masses of humanity. What's Satan's strategy? Well, we know in Genesis 6, it was to corrupt the Messiah's line and mess up the genetics so that Messiah couldn't come as a human being. That's number one. The second thing is to eliminate all human beings on the face of the planet. And it did. Because Satan knows if he can get humans to thoroughly rebel against God, then God's justice will demand that they get wiped out. And it did. The plan was very successful. Only eight people of the entire world were able to be saved everyone else deserved to die he was successful in that and the same is true in the tribulation the idea is to wipe out all human beings that's the agenda that's why you see the proliferation of abortion that's why you see the proliferation of homosexuality and lesbianism because they can't produce the idea is to wipe out the human race kill all of them that's satan's game and and his plan okay That being the case, then let's return to the text and look at verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now, the idea of sorry, or sometimes your translation will say repented, it's not that God didn't know this was going to happen. Obviously, with his omniscience, he did. What it means in the Hebrew is this, that God changed his behavior towards human beings because of their behavior. And that's the way he, you, ha, you have to think about God. It's like looking at a fan that blows air out, okay? So this fan is blowing air out in one direction. You can stand in front of the fan and have the air blow on you, or you can stand to the side and the air will miss you, and that's the way you have to think about the wrath of God. If you're saved, if you obey, if you repent, you stand outside of where the air is blowing, so to speak. But if you decide to take a position against God in rebellion, then you'll be standing directly in front of that fan. And that fan will blow the wrath of God on you, so to speak, if you understand the analogy. And that's what the Hebrew is saying, is because of what man was doing through the satanic realm, God was forced by his own justice to wipe everyone off the planet except Noah and his family. So don't get the idea that God repented because it says in other scriptures that God can't repent because he already knows it. And this is 1 Samuel 15, 11, says he can't repent. So it's the idea of God reacting to the behavior of humans. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. I will wipe out, blot out to terminate. And it's so bad he has to, he has to do this globally. That's how bad it is, okay? Both man and beast, notice that, that animals are included in this, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. Now, the idea here is that he kills all creatures except the aquatic animals. And you say, well, why? Well, it shows you that something's going on in the DNA because animals are not necessarily evil, neither are birds or anything like that. But why does he have to get rid of them? Why does he only take pairs of two into the ark? Because... Because of the sin of the watchers, they have contaminated the DNA. Not just of humans, but of animals as well. Like I told you, in some of the ancient mythologies, there's always a recombination of human and animal mixtures, where you have these demigods that have both animal and human features. Joshua saw the same thing. That's why he was told to harem people in certain villages and clans, God told him, I want the women, the children, and the beasts all killed because the DNA had been tampered with. They weren't fully human. They weren't fully animals. There was tampering with the DNA. So that's why God includes the animals into the flood and kills them except for the ones he put on the ark. Again, this shows you how prolific Satan had been and contaminating all DNA. It was that bad. All DNA is fouled up, messed up. Amazing. Okay, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. And, he's, and this is why he's spared from the just flood judgment and his family will be spared. And then Moses gives the reasons why. Verse nine. This is the genealogy of Noah. And it says Noah was a just man. And that word just means righteous. And what do we mean by that? It means positionally he's righteous because he believes in Yahweh, but he's externally righteous as well. Noah has not caved into the culture. He is holding the line morally and holding the line for his family as well. So in, in the Old Testament, the way you read that, a just man, is this. It's not just simply that he's saved. It's that he's living a righteous life. The Old Testament will say, if you obey, you have life. If you disobey, you will have death. Okay, So there's both aspects to this. He's saved, but he's living a righteous life, morally speaking. He's demonstrating out. So he has both aspects. This is important to understand. This is important to understand repentance. Repentance has to do many times of changing your behavior. It's simply not enough just to say, I'm sorry. That's confession, but that's not repentance. You can say sorry all day long, and you've had people say sorry to you all day long, but do they change their behavior? No, many times they don't. So in this world, these people were not just simply not believers. They were not repenting of what they were doing. And that aspect is what got them killed. It's a twofold aspect. They didn't believe, and they simply didn't obey. Now, here's the question. Can an unbeliever repent? Repent. Not, and I'm not talking about getting saved. But can an unbeliever, let's say he's an alcoholic, okay? And obviously, the alcoholism is going to kill him. But if he repents, not biblically repenting, but just stops doing what he's doing, goes to a clinic and gets cleaned out and dried up, in essence, he will preserve his life because he's no longer doing that sin. He's actually repented, even though he's not connected to God. He stopped doing a destructive behavior And that stopping of the behavior is a form of repentance and stops the death principle from happening in his life. So it's very possible for unbelievers, whether they know it or not, or even believers to stop a behavior that's killing them. These people in Noah's day would not stop their behavior. And God was forced then to cause them to perish. Now, it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Stop doing what you're doing to kill you. And that's what the issue you have to understand was going on. It's not just simply they weren't believers. They wouldn't stop their behavior. Now, let me make this connection. In the future, in the tribulation period, angels, the 144,000, will be sent out to the world to tell people to Repent. It's not just to believe in Messiah, but they'll be told to stop their behavior, but they won't. And at that point, when they don't stop their behavior, not only are they lost eternally for not being saved, they will die physically at the hands of Messiah. Messiah will kill them, and that's a hard pill those people to swallow, but that's what he does. And he kills so many people, there's a bloodbath of 200 miles square of blood, about four to five feet high, high as the horse's bridle. He melts them because they would not stop. It'll you know, say in the scriptures, they wouldn't stop worshiping demons or they wouldn't, they wouldn't stop blasphemy. They wouldn't stop. And therefore, he took their lives. And so it's the same today. I want you to grasp this concept. If an unbeliever, even an unbeliever, lives a moral lifestyle, according to what God is saying, it prevents the death principle from happening in their life. Not that they won't die. They're going to eventually die because the sin nature is going to kill you anyway. But they can live a longer life. People who decide to get into sin, even as an unbeliever, and won't stop, they die an early death. Think about this. Do you know how long the average homosexual lives? 40 years old. And that's without AIDS. I want you to think about that whether they're a believer or not, the lifestyle they're leading is going to kill them and lead to an early death because they refuse to repent. So this is the idea where I want you to start understanding. These people in Noah's day would not stop doing evil. And so God had to do this. So I want you to, to kind of grasp that a little bit. Okay. But notice this. He's perfect in his generations. Now, a lot of people, a lot of commentators will say, well, he's, just, he's perfect, he's mature, and and he's uh, living righteously. Sorry, it's not what it's talking about. This is the key phrase to understand why Noah and his family were saved. It's not just simply that Noah's a believer, he's living righteously, like we saw with the first phrase. It's that his genetic code is pure, and so are the eight people on the ark. What do you mean by that? Let's take the word perfect. The word perfect means without blemish. It is a direct reference to Israel's idea of sacrificing. What do you mean? Well, when you brought a lamb to sacrifice, that lamb had to be without physical defect. You couldn't sacrifice like a crippled lamb or some deformity in the lamb or what. It had to be physically good. Okay. In order to be an acceptable sacrifice. Okay. Otherwise, you couldn't offer it. Okay. As you recall, Israel started sacrificing bad animals, crippled animals and stuff. And the Lord got mad at them. Remember that. But you had to have a a lamb without defect. That's the same word. And what it's referencing to is that Noah had a pure DNA. So did his wife and so did his kids and somehow Their wives as well had DNA that was okay. All the animals that will be brought on the ark have pure DNA to restart the whole thing again. And so that's what you have to understand. It's That phrase right there is referring to DNA issues. Now, we move on and it says, Noah walked with God. Again, this is another reference to his his attitude with God, his fellowship with God, his faith, his devotion, his obedience. And it's a term that very few people in the Bible get, walking with God. It's a term that's given to Enoch. It's a term to given to Noah. And eventually they're called a friend of God. Noah is a friend of God. Now, this is not something that you can achieve. You can achieve this in your walk with the Lord. But it's a spiritual mature position to say a believer walks with God. Now, we can be a believer and not walk with God, but what the Scripture is pointing us to and admonishing us is that you can be like Noah, but you have to be sold out completely to God in order to walk with Him. Again, there's a very small remnant that gets there. They do get there, but it's actually commanded that we do. Israel was commanded to walk with God. It's something that we can do, but you have to give it all out. You can't leave any part of you away. You have to be fully devoted to God, as Noah was, and Enoch. Verse 10, And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, what that's doing is, it's kind of like thrown in there. We'll talk later about Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But what it's doing is saying, not only are they uh, Noah pure, but his his boys are pure, but it's a foreshadowing. And what is a foreshadowing? It's a foreshadowing that Uh, Sorry, Noah is going to be a typology for Adam. It's going to be a recreation after the flood. And so Noah is like Adam. And as Adam had sons, so will Noah. And these sons, by the way, will be who populates the planet. You know something interesting? This will blow you away. And scientists seem to not figure this out. But you know it. There are only three DNA structures. There's only three. Why is that? How many boys? Three. They will never link it to them. They don't want to link it to them. But the three DNA structures, and whether you have one, two, or three, you might be a combination of all three. In your DNA, you only have three structures. And it comes from the three boys after the flood. I find that interesting scientifically. Science backs everything the Bible says up. Isn't that amazing? Verse 11. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And the idea is that it got so evil, everyone became bloodthirsty, cold-blooded, murdering, brutality, severe treatment of other people, and that's defiling the land. And understand this, because the land is being defiled, the earth is being defiled, God will not dwell there. It's just like the lesson he told Israel. If you defile the land, I won't dwell there. Future implications. The world is getting so polluted. But here's the thing. Jesus is coming back to reign on the throne of David on our planet. But the same principle applies. He will not reign on that throne on our soil until all evil and wickedness is expunged. Hence, that is the purpose for the tribulation. Jesus is going to rule and reign, but he has to expunge and expel the evil out of it. And he will do that in a seven-year tribulation. So it's the same thing. He's not going to inhabit this earth while it's defiled or polluted. And hence, the, the water will be the first washing away of the pollution. The second one will be the fire that refines the earth and gets all of the pollution away. So it's the same things we're working with. Verse 13, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The idea is that it's connecting back to the earth was corrupt. They had corrupted the earth. So since they polluted the earth, or destroy the earth with their bloodthirsty violence, I'm now going to destroy the very earth they're on and destroy them as well. And God had every right to do so. That being the case, we will see next week that he starts going into Noah, how Noah's going to be preserved, and his family's going to be preserved, and he starts giving the details about the ark. And that's a study in and of itself that we'll look at next week. But the idea here is this. Notice in verse 13 that God confides in Noah. That's an interesting thing. It's called being a friend of God. God said that about Abraham. God told that, or Jesus told that about the disciples, I call you now my friends. I know there's a popular song out there that we are a friend of God. That's accurate. You can only become a friend of God once you reach and pass a certain test in your life. And what is that test? Well, for Abraham, I'll tell you what the test was. The test was later in his life, not early in his life, but later in his life, he was called to sacrifice Isaac. You remember that? It is after that episode that Abraham is now called a friend of God. It is at this episode right here that Noah is being confided in, which shows you that God is revealing things to him. Just like he revealed to Abraham that he is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that? When God confides in the individuals, that means they're his friend. So it's a position that we all could get to, but you have to be fully devoted to God and you have to pass a test. What's the test? That's by God and you. At some point in your life, you will be tested. The maximum test he could probably throw at you. And I don't know what that test will be. For people, it might be health issues. It might be financial issues. It might be you losing a spouse. It might be you losing your marriage. I don't know. But at some point in your life, you will be given the ultimate test for you. And the question that you and I will have to deal with is whether you and I will pass the test or not. If you pass the test, you will be now called a friend of God. If you don't, You'll stay as a believer in discipleship, but you will never reach that position of being a friend of God. That is only reserved for those who pass that test in their life. That test may come early in your life. It might come later in your life. I don't know when that test will come, but it's tailor-made for you. For Abraham, it was the sacrifice of Isaac. For Noah, you're going to build an ark. And it's never rained. It's never flooded. And these people are going to mock you for 120 years. That's your test. So at some point, you're going to get that test. I hope you pass it. Now, with that being said, what's the application on this? Because this is there's a lot here. The question is, how does Noah stay so faithful to God? How is he a friend of God that God even confides in him, talks to him? How did he reach that status of just staying like a rock in the midst of the pure evil that he was immersed in? Because it's hard enough for the days we live in. Here's what I want to show you in the application. Hebrews 11, 6 talks about this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder. Listen to the last phrase. A rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's the last phrase. Now, all of us believe in God. Yep, I believe in God, trust in Jesus for my Savior. Yes, okay. The the question is, are you seeking him diligently because you know he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, what do you mean by that? Let me back up a little bit. Faith and obedience, as Noah was obedient to all that he did, showed his, his faith, right? Faith and obedience are connected, right? So sometimes you want to say, I can tell you what someone believes by how they obey. Okay? Their obedience will show you their faith a lot of times. It's connected. James will connect the two in the book of James. There's one other little ingredient in the connection between faith and obedience. And this is where I want you to center in on, based on Hebrews 11. It's the will. You have faith, and then your will plays a part in your obedience. Okay? Now, what do you mean by that? Well, you obviously know that Christians can believe in certain things and affirm them and say, I believe that, but then they don't do it. Right? You can believe certain things and not do them. That is showing you an evidence of that they are not willing to do it. They might believe it, but their will now is getting in the way of it. Ah. Well, why would somebody not want to obey? Because in their will, and this is where it centers, the will is motivated by what Hebrews is saying By reward. What do you mean? To be willing to obey, I have to understand that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, follow me on this. The reason Noah has a motivation to obey is because he knows he will be rewarded for that obedience. I'm not talking about salvation. It pays to obey is the principle. Not in salvation, but for reward. Here's the deal. Noah sees what God will reward him for, understands that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, and he values that reward. Hence, he's motivated to obey because he values the reward. Follow me on this. When someone doesn't value... The reward of obedience, whatever that reward is—an abundant life, or whatever rewards in the next life, or whatever—you'll eat from the tree of the knowledge of, uh, 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 sorry, the tree of life. You'll eat from that tree. When someone doesn't value the rewards of obedience, they lack the motivation to obey. If that makes sense, hence you must value the things God values in order to motivate your will to obey. If you don't value the abundant life, you won't want to obey. What will you obey? You will obey the dictates of your own will. That's what you obey. You will will obey what you value. And that's what caused Noah to stand in the gap and not cave in. He valued. Now, Now, here's the deal. As an example, do you remember Jacob and Esau? That scene in which Esau comes in, he's hungry, and he he devalues his birthright and and that the line uh, of the Abrahamic covenant is going to go through him. He devalues it so bad that he sells his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. Remember that? That's how much he valued the things of God. So Jacob obviously valued those things. He wanted it, and he took it. And he was, he was willing to accept it, no doubt about it. The point about that is, is Esau was a man who didn't value the things of God. It didn't matter to him. He didn't care. Hence, he wasn't motivated to obey. The question you and I must face, especially in the times we're living, the days of Noah, you have to start valuing the reward that God offers for obedience. What do you mean? What are the rewards? Do you know them? What are the rewards of obedience? Well, I understand the abundant life. Is the abundant life important to you? If it's not, you won't obey. Let me ask you this. Is eating from the tree of life important to you? Is being a king in the next life, a ruler, important to you? Is uh, having access uh, in, uh, as far as servitude to the Lord important to you in the next life? See, these are the questions you have to wrestle with. You have to understand your rewards. You have to understand what crowns mean, all that stuff. If you don't value rewards, you won't obey. You have no motivation to do it. If you do obey, it'll be just simply hollow obedience. And that kind of obedience won't stand the test. Because Satan is going to offer you something that looks so good that you might in va- start valuing what he's offering you. Like a rich lifestyle or a, a, uh, you know, uh, a hedonistic lifestyle or whatever. He will put in front of you something that will tempt you to value. And if you go that route, then your obedience will be lacking. We call them worldly Christians. Why do you think so many worldly Christians are caving in right now? Because they don't value the things of God. That's why they're not standing the test of time. I'll end on this. This is a discipleship term. It's not a salvation term. But you know that, you know what this term says, and it says this. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? That's not a salvation passage. If you read the passage, it's a discipleship passage. The idea is what does it profit a man to value the world and go after the world and yet lose his spiritual life? What does it profit? Because if you lose your spiritual life, you're not going to get any rewards for that. You'll be saved, but you won't get any rewards. Read that text on your own when you get some time. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Noah was willing to give up this world. That's why he could stand the test. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.